Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkemann. Last time, we looked at the Hanseatic League, the powerful German merchants' organization that had popped up every now and then in the last few episodes, monopolizing trade and interfering in Scandinavian high politics. Before that, we also did a few other mid-14th century thematic episodes on St. Bridget and the Plague, but the last time we devoted an episode to the chronological narrative, Margaret of Denmark, daughter of Valdemar Don and the widow of King Haakon of Norway, was engaged in a war against the German-born king of Sweden, Albert of Mecklenburg. Even though today's episode is also all about the struggle for control over Sweden and with a seafaring theme, our main focus won't be on the Hanseatic League this time, even though the Hansa will make an appearance in this episode as well. Episode 56, Pirates and Privateers. Back in the Middle Ages, the Baltic Sea wasn't always as safe as it is today for merchants and other seafarers. As I mentioned last time, when we talked about the Hanseatic League, one of the reasons the League was established in the first place was to provide some security for its members, since the various states surrounding the Baltic Sea were either incapable or uninterested in securing their own territorial waters and shipping lanes for merchant shipping. Ever since the Viking Age, and perhaps longer than that, you'd been running the risk of being attacked by pirates when you sailed the Baltic Sea. And today, we'll have a closer look at one band of pirates that was especially influential at the end of the 14th century, just as the Hanseatic League was at its peak. The band of pirates we'll be talking about are known to history as the Victual Brothers. First of all, let me point out that many, not least the Victual Brothers themselves, would object to the term pirates being applied to them. And they'd have a point, at least a partial point. You see, the Victual Brothers were, at least originally, organized as a band of privateers. The difference between privateers and pirates was that a privateer was a private individual who received a license from a government or a sovereign to attack, capture and rob ships belonging to countries at war with the license-issuing party. The privateers were usually paid by being allowed to keep all or part of the loot from the enemy ships they captured. These privateering licenses allowed you to operate beyond the territorial waters of the issuing government or sovereign so you could attack your victims anywhere in the world and it would still be legal, at least back home. Privateering was a thing in Europe and by extension anywhere Europeans sailed all the way up to the 19th century and privateers would often be held in high regard back home. Pirates, on the other hand, were universally reviled for doing exactly the same thing, but without government backing. And to the victims of privateers, the fact that your robber had been given the green light from some prince or city council was probably cold comfort. Beside the discussion of whether they were pirates or privateers, the Victual Brothers have also been described as a kind of guild. I'm not entirely convinced that that's the best way to characterize them, but I will nonetheless use that as an excuse to explain what a guild was, since it's an institution that's central to medieval economic life, and this is as good a time as any to explain what it was. A guild was a medieval association of artisans such as shoemakers or bakers or merchants, 
who regulated all aspects of their craft in a particular area, such as a city. Members of the guild were the only ones allowed to sell their wares or practice their skill within the guild's territory. The guild not only regulated who could work with what, but also minimum or maximum prices, at what hours you could have your shop open, how many apprentices you were allowed to have, and many other things. Where guilds were in control, they shaped labor, production, and trade, and the concept of a career progression mirroring the development of your skill level from apprentice to master comes from the guilds. Being a member of a guild obviously had its benefits. Beyond limiting your competition and making sure you were paid a certain minimum for your goods, the guild often supported old and sick former members who needed assistance. They would also look out for poor widows and orphans of dead members. Membership was often inherited, so if your father was a shoemaker or baker, you were allowed to, or even expected to, take up his business after him. But if you weren't a member of the guild, they made it as difficult as possible for you to break into their territory. The time it took to go from apprentice to master was also much longer than needed to actually learn a skill, just as much, or probably more, than to ensure that apprentices learned their craft properly, the long process was meant to protect a limited number of master craftsmen from unpleasant competition. And even though, in theory at least, the guild made sure that the quality of the work of all its members was of a certain level, and that no one cheated their customers, another, just as important consequence was that the guilds reduced free competition, keeping prices up, and newcomers out. Their conservatism reduced the rate of innovation and ultimately made people poorer and society stagnant. So the Victual Brothers weren't really a guild in that sense, but it liked to see itself as a brotherhood of sorts. The members came primarily from northern Germany, and they included some noblemen from Mecklenburg, at least to begin with. The reason for this was the original purpose of the brotherhood, the purpose that gave them their name. The Victual Brothers entered the stage, or at least the history books, during the war between Albert of Mecklenburg and Queen Margaret of Denmark. Traditionally, the Brotherhood is said to have been founded in 1389 with the expressed purpose of aiding Albert during the siege of Stockholm, providing the beleaguered city with provisions, or Victualia in Latin. We mentioned the siege in episode 51, One King, Two Crowns. Later, the Victual Brothers would branch out and develop into a more independent organization that made money more broadly from piracy in the Baltic Sea and the North, North Atlantic. What made them stand out from other bands of pirates was their cooperative distribution of revenue. Usually, the crew on a pirate ship would be paid a fixed sum for their services, just like any other ship crew. But the Victual Brothers saw themselves as a brotherhood, so they would instead split up the booty between them. Of course, captains and other officers would get a larger share, but still. This gave them something of a Robin Hood-style reputation, which wasn't necessarily well-deserved, since they were still basically pirates, and those who got robbed probably couldn't care less how their stolen property was divided up among the robbers. The battle cry of the Victual Brothers was Gottes Freund aller Weltfeind, meaning something like God's friends and everybody else's enemy which uh, sums up their attitude pretty well, at least to the maritime world. But let's go back to how it all started. Albert of Mecklenburg became king of Sweden in 1364, and it didn't take long for Swedish subjects of his to grow tired of him. 
That included the nobility, and they decided they wanted to do something about the whole situation. So they eventually turned to Denmark, asking for help to depose Albert and send him back to Mecklenburg again. On March 22, 1388, Margaret of Denmark was declared regent of Sweden, but that didn't mean the war was over. Albert was not going to accept being usurped, especially not by a woman. The burghers of Stockholm supported the king, and that's not particularly surprising since so many of the leading burghers of the city were Germans, and the Hanseatic League was so influential in its economic life and city council. And yes, in this case, influential is a euphemism for controlled. So the war continued. Albert went to Germany to raise more troops to fight off the Danes, and around New Year's in 1388-89, he returned to Sweden with about 1,000 battle-hardened mounted knights. He most likely landed in Kalmar, which was an important port city in southeastern Sweden. So a logical choice if you crossed the Baltic Sea from Mecklenburg and wanted to hunt down an invading force roaming around in southern Sweden. From Kalmar, he continued inland in pursuit of the Danish army. On February 24th, 1389, the two forces met outside Falköping in Westrogothia, and, as you may remember from episode 51, the battle ended with a humiliating defeat for Albert and his hired German troops. It was especially humiliating for the king himself and his son Eric, a bishop and a bunch of knights, because they were taken captive by the Danes. Margaret had the bishop released, she didn't want to mess with the church more than necessary, and let the knights buy their freedom. But Albert and his son Eric were sent to a fortress on the west coast, close to where the city of Gothenburg is located today. She planned to use them as a bargaining chip to put an end to the war and get the Germans out of Sweden. She also ordered her army to move on Stockholm, where Albert's German allies were still holding out, ensconced behind the city walls. And this is where the Victual brothers enter our story. It was vital for Albert's allies that they managed to hold Stockholm. The city is strategically located where Lake Mälaren meets the Baltic Sea, and a bunch of vital waterways and trade routes pass by Stockholm. If Margaret couldn't capture Stockholm, the Germans would be able to disrupt life in northern and central Sweden indefinitely. But conversely, if Albert's allies wanted to retain any hope of winning the war, they needed to hold on to Stockholm. And now the city was under siege, and all roads leading in and out had been cut off by the Danes. That meant that the Germans needed to provision the besieged city from the sea. Since Mecklenburg didn't have a fleet of its own, they decided to charge a privateer flotilla to establish a link between Stockholm and the world. So joining the Victual brothers was something of a noble cause for aristocrats from Mecklenburg who went out in service of their duke and with the prospect of making money. This was an almost irresistible combination for quite a few rowdy and adventure-seeking men from the lower nobility, and they were joined by men of a similar disposition from other social strata as well. All in all, some 1,400 people were involved in this operation, which obviously put the Victual brothers in direct conflict with the Danish navy in the early 1390s. During the conflict with Denmark, the Victual brothers not only made sure that the inhabitants of Stockholm didn't starve, they also took on some more military tasks, such as blockading locations and ports used by the Danish fleet, and uh, shoring up the morale among the leaders in Stockholm. 
they did so by arresting 60 Swedish, as opposed to German, Stockholm burghers and other influential Swedes, who weren't too keen on keeping up the fight in favour of a captured German king. These Swedes, some burghers and some noblemen, argued that it would be better to give in and throw open the city gates to the Danes. For obvious reasons, this idea was opposed by the German burghers, fearing that Danish rule would be bad for Hansa business in Stockholm and Sweden at large. At this point, the Hanseatic League was at its strongest in Sweden, and they basically controlled Stockholm. If Albert of Mecklenburg were to lose his Swedish crown, that would not be good news for the Hanseatic merchants in the city. As the mood in the city turned, and the calls to give up resistance to the Danes grew stronger, the Victual brothers were tasked with preserving the order. And apparently they did so with gusto, harassing the local population that didn't toe the pro-German line. On June the 11th, 1389, the Swedish mayor of Stockholm and two other prominent Swedes were arrested on the orders of the German members of the city council. The three men were later released for ransom, but the incident was an ominous foretaste of what was to come. On June 14th, the city council was called to a meeting, and there all the Swedish members of the governing body were arrested and accused of treason. Some of the accused were locked up in the castle, whereas others were tortured at City Hall. The following day, three of them were burned at the stake, no doubt to the horror of the city population, for whom their German defenders were starting to look increasingly like enemy occupiers. Then, during the night of June 17th, the night of Corpus Christi, the prisoners who had been held at the castle were rowed out to an islet just off the city where they were locked up in a barn. The barn was then set on fire, burning everyone inside alive. The massacre is known as the Schepplinge murders. In the short term, it secured continued German control over Stockholm, but in the end, their situation became untenable, not least since King Albert was still held prisoner by the Danes. And King Albert and his son remained in Danish custody until 1395. They were only released after they had signed an agreement promising to hand over Stockholm to the Danes within three years or to pay a fine. Albert's son Eric went off to Gotland where he installed himself as the island's ruler, but he died shortly thereafter and when the three years were up, Albert chose not to pay to keep Stockholm. Maybe he couldn't raise the money, maybe he had lost interest in being king of Sweden. Instead, he gave up the city and his Swedish crown and returned to Mecklenburg to start a new life, exiting our story. After the agreement between Denmark and Mecklenburg put an end both to the hostilities and the official reason for the Vectual brothers' existence, a lot of people, especially those prone to wishful thinking, expected the Brotherhood to disband and its members to return to more peaceful pursuits. But it was far too profitable to be a pirate for people to give it up just because it was no longer legal. The Victual brothers weren't ready to follow Albert's example and to pack up and go home. Instead, they continued their activities on the Baltic Sea, but now without the official backing and approval of Albert and the Duchy of Mecklenburg. Right about this time, it became painfully obvious to the powers that be in Mecklenburg that not having a fleet of their own and instead outsourcing all their naval needs on the Victual brothers 
had backfired in the most spectacular fashion. The Brotherhood soon became a general source of unrest and worry for anyone traversing the Baltic Sea, whether they be pro or anti-Mecklenburg. The Victual Brothers not only attacked ships they came across on the open sea, they even captured the cities of Turku and Viborg, as well as a bunch of Swedish castles around the Baltic Sea, and held them temporarily. And they didn't limit their piracy to the Baltic Sea either. In 1393, they attacked and captured the city of Bergen itself. Around Easter time that year, they showed up with 18 ships, took the city and spent eight days pillaging, robbing, killing and burning. They didn't even spare the churches, and when they finally left, Bergen was devastated. This attack was a contributing factor behind the severing of the link between Scandinavia and Greenland that we talked about in episode 54, since Bergen was the port from which ships would sail to Greenland. The piracy of the Victual brothers inevitably put them on a collision course with the Hanseatic League, which, as you all know, was the leading trading organization sailing on the Baltic Sea at this time. For instance, the brothers attacked Hansa ships off the island of Öland in southeastern Sweden already in the summer of 1391, and other vessels belonging to the Hanseatic League were also attacked in the waters off the Hansa port of Visby on Gotland. By 1392, the Victual brothers had become one of the principal adversaries of Lübeck, the leading Hansa town, not least since Lübeck, as opposed to the rest of the Hanseatic League, was actually supporting the Danes in the war against Mecklenburg. Most of the other Hansa towns supported Mecklenburg, since the League feared what a victorious Denmark might do to limit their access to the sea lanes in the Baltic Sea. But, as the Victual brothers continued to attack and raid ships from all Hansa ports, not only Lübeck, the leaders of the League started to reconsider their benevolent attitude toward the Brotherhood. The situation soon grew so grave that the League decided to cancel the fish market in Öresund in the fall of 1393. The Hanseatic merchants realized that their risk of Victual brothers capturing ships and or killing crews was too great, and they weren't willing to take it. The fact that the market was cancelled, even though the incomes from the fish trade in this area was a part of the very foundation of the league, is a clear indication of how grave the situation must have been. And it was probably a smart call, because the Victual brothers were as active as ever in the Ursund Strait that fall. They captured and burned the city of Malmö, and then they sailed across the strait to Copenhagen and attacked that city as well but the inhabitants managed to repel the attack that time. In March 1394, the Hanseatic Diet decided to send out a fleet of pirate hunters to take care of the Victual brothers once and for all. 36 large ships, each manned with 100 soldiers, were sent out. This flotilla was probably an impressive sight, but I'm not sure how much of an existential threat it was to the Victual brothers, because they had more than three times as many ships crisscrossing the Baltic Sea. Some 5,000 pirates belonging to the Brotherhood roamed the Baltic Sea in at least 100 ships, robbing and killing people on vessels they came across at sea, in ports, and on beaches. The same year, the Brotherhood captured the city of Visby on Gotland, once so important to the Hanseatic League. The pirates, who previously had been able to seek shelter in ports along the Mecklenburg coast, 
now made Visby their main base of operations. This was pretty much rock bottom for the once thriving port city of Visby, falling from golden trading hub to grubby pirate nest within the span of a generation. Visby may have hit rock bottom, but the Brotherhood was riding high. They were at the peak of their power, and the booty kept streaming in. But in a way, the Victual Brothers had become too successful for their own good. The financial ecosystem of the Baltic Sea was at the verge of collapse, and it was now in the interest of all major powers in Northern Europe that they be stamped out. As the Danes finally gained the upper hand on land, and the Hanseatic League eventually joined them in the fight against the Brotherhood, it was really only a matter of time, until they would be stopped. But that didn't mean that stopping them was easy or painless. For instance, in 1396, fleets tasked with crushing the pirates were sent out both from German ports and from Kalmar in Sweden. Unfortunately, this wasn't a coordinated action, and the German fleet misidentified the Swedish fleet as pirates themselves. Off the coast of Gotland, the Swedish ships were boarded by the Germans, who killed the Swedish crews by throwing them into the sea and letting them drown. Eventually, the Victual brothers were chased out of Visby, neither by the Swedes nor by the Hansa. Instead, it was Albert of Mecklenburg himself who got the ball rolling by basically handing over the island of Gotland to the Teutonic Order, the German knights who controlled much of the Baltic lands. In 1398, the Order landed on Gotland, conquering the island and driving the pirates out of Visby. The locals might have welcomed that development, if the Teutonic Knights hadn't also devastated the city of Visby by itself in the process. Those pirates who managed to escape from Visby also had to agree to hand over all castles and other strongholds they still controlled in Sweden to the Danes. Now they had lost all their footholds in the northern parts of the Baltic Sea and were reduced to seeking shelter in various minor ports in northern Germany. Even though their glory days were well and truly behind them by now, some of the Victual brothers kept up the piracy for years, even decades. In 1429, they plundered the city of Bergen once again, and if you were a merchant sailing to or from Scandinavian ports, you risked running into the Victual brothers as late as the 1430s. The city of Visby would even become the headquarters for pirates again in the mid-1400s, but that is the topic for another episode. Next time, we'll follow up on what Margaret of Denmark went on to do after she had evicted King Albert of Mecklenburg from Sweden. Once he was gone, she could start to arrange Scandinavian politics as she saw fit. In the last years of the 14th century, she was the most powerful person in Scandinavia. But she had one weakness that complicated her ambitions. Her sex. But before we wrap up today, though, I'd like to talk about a couple of listeners' responses that I've received. The first one comes from Stefan in Sweden, and uh, he wrote in after he'd listened to episode 52, where we talked about St. Bridget. Stefan likes to bring to the attention of the listeners of the Scandinavian History Podcast that St. Bridget isn't the only real Swedish saint. And just to be clear here, by real, I mean a saint canonized by the Vatican. It's way above my pay grade to ascertain whether or not any saint is actually in heaven in interceding with God on behalf of people who pray for their help. Anyway, 
it's true that St. Bridget isn't the only Swedish saint canonized by the Vatican. Stefan likes me to mention a certain Elizabeth Hesselblad, who was canonized only a few years ago, actually, some 450 years after Sweden became a Protestant country, abolishing the veneration of saints. Elizabeth was born in 1870 as one of 13 kids. The family was poor, not only because they had so many children, but also because her father kept failing at business and going bankrupt. When she was 18, Elizabeth did as so many other Scandinavians of her generation and emigrated to America, where she hoped to find a brighter future than what Sweden had to offer. She worked as a nurse and sent money back home to her impoverished relatives in Sweden. She also converted to Catholicism, and when she was told she had a fatal illness, she traveled to Rome to be able to die in the city at the heart of her adopted religion. But she didn't die, at least not for many years. Instead, she became a nun and worked to re-establish the Brigitine Order in Sweden, which uh, she succeeded in doing, actually, including Vastena, where St. Bridget's convent had been located. The original establishment was closed down during the Reformation, when it also became illegal to practice Catholicism in Sweden. In Elizabeth's day, it was no longer illegal, but Catholics were still discriminated against in Sweden. During the Second World War, when the Germans were arresting Italian Jews and sending them to the death camps in Poland, Elizabeth hid Jews in the Brigittine convent at Piazza Farnese in Rome. When German soldiers came to look for hidden Jews at the convent, she blocked their entry, holding up a Swedish flag and proclaiming that the convent stood under the protection of the King of Sweden and that they weren't allowed to enter. I imagine it must have looked something like Gandalf confronting the Balrog on the bridge in Moria. It's not entirely clear how strongly King Gustav V really felt about the protection of some Catholic convent in Rome, but the German soldiers were convinced. They backed down and left the convent alone. In 1955, the new king, Gustav VI Adolf, made Elizabeth a member of the Royal Order of the Polar Star in recognition of her bravery. And in 2004, she was posthumously awarded the title Righteous Among the Nations by the Israeli Holocaust Museum Yad Vashem. The process of making her a saint started in 1987, and she was finally canonized in 2016. Thank you, Stefan, for writing. The second listener email I'd like to talk to you about today comes from a listener called Jonas, who's also from Sweden. He objects to my views on prehistoric migration to Scandinavia, which he finds outdated. More specifically, in episode 1, I dismissed the idea that the introduction of the battle axe culture into Scandinavia some 5,000 years ago was a sign of migration of new people, presumably the Indo-Europeans, to Scandinavia. As it turns out, that's a position that isn't necessarily in sync with the latest research on the topic. In post-war scholarship, for years the idea of a Germanic migration into Scandinavia was dismissed as a fantasy steeped in racist ideology conjured up in the age of nationalism. I still remember my professor at the introductory course to history at a university in Sweden showing us images of 19th century artists' representations of these Germanic tribes, all very tall, blonde, and their chins held high as they entered Scandinavia with their Indo-European culture in their satchels. Then he'd brush this notion aside as national romantic propaganda or wishful thinking. But that was a quarter of a century ago. In the following decades, modern technologies, including DNA analysis, 
have become a useful tool for archaeologists, and we now know the answer to riddles we never thought we'd be able to solve. And one thing that we've learned thanks to this new DNA technology is that there are signs pointing to a wave of immigration at about the time when we start seeing artifacts from the battle axe culture in Scandinavian archaeological digs. Several studies conducted in 2015 and later indicate that the battle axe people are genetically connected to tribes from Central Asia and not to the people who lived in Scandinavia before them. The DNA findings aren't yet conclusive, and there's still vigorous debate about where this new population originated and how exactly it's related to other peoples. But the question about migration versus diffusion of knowledge is definitely back on the table, and the DNA evidence seems to point toward migration, or that a wave of immigrants reached Scandinavia and brought with them their culture, which was adopted by the people already living there at the time, as the two groups merged. Or, as the case may be, the new population subdued the old one. Thank you, Jonas, for writing in and alerting me to the latest developments on this fascinating topic. I'm sure we'll hear more about it in the future. And that was all we had time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you run into other fans of Scandinavian history, which, let's face it, is basically everywhere. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also do as Stefan and Jonas did and send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.